0: Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. As always, I have with me Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. Today, we're going to talk about out of camp conditioning, why it's important, and why you need to do it. So Alex, why do people need to train out of camp, not just in
1: because i mean at least for a specific amount of our listeners you're a professional fighter and as a professional (laughs) fighter you work your round (laughs) you don't work eight weeks at a time because Um, this is your job because it's your job and do your fucking job that's it (laughs) um but no training out of camp gives you so many more potential um growth areas like um when you train out of camp, you get to work on a lot of your weaknesses. You get to play around with your training a little bit. You get to set the foundation so that once we get to camp, it's not a mad dash to get you in shape. It's not a mad dash to make weight. It's a it's a refinement period and an actual focus on winning the fight when we get to camp. That only happens if we lay the foundation out of camp, right? So we got a long time period. You know, you're talking maybe months uh, in between camps or a month at least. You have time to correct some of the faulty movement patterns or address some of the injuries or address a weakness you saw in your last fight. Out of camp is the time to do all of that general and kind of weakness addressing type of training. And you just miss out on all that if you know you choose to show up to two practices a week out of camp or do you know, maybe just go lift whenever you feel like it, right? So it's, it's a great time to develop yourself as an athlete.
0: Well, and it allows you to build your bases. It allows you to build the base level of your pyramids. Like it allows to you to get you your aerobic base. It allows you to get to your strength base, all of these different things that they take a long time to build up. But once you have them, it takes a long time for them to go away. Right? We know that it takes at least three months, if not longer, most likely longer to build an aerobic base. You're not just going to build it overnight. But once you get that, it lasts for a very long time. And it's something that's really, really hard to go away. Same thing with a strength base. Once you build that strength base up, it takes a lot longer than power for it to go away, right? So that's why it's so important in the off season or out of camp, thinking about The difference between wrestling and fighting, because this is applicable to every combat sport, not just MMA, but we're talking MMA fighters out of camp conditioning and out of camp strength work are extremely important because it gives you that base level of competency that allows you to progress when you get into camp. It makes you Mario,
1: if you will. Yeah, it gives you a a more rounded stat bar, more rounded approach. And even on the skill side of things, you get an opportunity to develop your game in a different uh, manner than just focusing on your game plan or just focusing on your strategy to win the next fight. And that's where a lot of actual growth in your fight game comes from, is when you can you know, expand and be creative and play with your training and, and just see that on a skill side of things. But to Austin's point, if we come into camp as Mario and we already have our conditioning dialed, we already have a lot of our strength-based styled, then think of how much more valuable our time is going to be in camp. Right. Because in camp, strength conditioning gets progressively less and less emphasized. So if we have less and less time, we can utilize it for a lot better training, a lot better effects, a lot better methodologies than, you know, I need to tag 20 minutes of cardio onto every session because you're out of shape and you're overweight. Like that's just where it is.
0: Well, and it allows us to not have a fat camp too. Yeah. Which is something that I tell all the guys I train. It's like, look, we could spend your entire camp getting you down to weight or a big, or we can train in the off season, keep you around a very close, not close to your weight, but a a healthy weight for your weight class. And then we can focus on actually building attributes and taking you from Mario, which what I mean by Mario is that you're even at, or as close to even as possible at all the stat bars, like you're really good at a lot of stuff. And then when we're in camp, we can make you great at the things that you're great at. And that's what it does. That's what, out-of-camp training and out-of-camp conditioning allows us to do. It allows us to make you great at certain aspects when you're in camp, instead of focusing on trying to just get you up to competency at the stuff that you're deficient at during camp.
1: So with that being said, and like you said, when you get really good at a lot of different attributes, uh, whether it be conditioning, strength, technical skills, otherwise, what are areas that you focus on? I mean, obviously it's going to be individualized where you got your your athlete in front of you and you work on what they need to work on, but what are some general areas of focus for out of camp, strength and conditioning, out of camp planning?
0: Well, what I tell everybody is out of camp is if you don't have an aerobic capacity, that is primo numero uno importante. Mm. That is what you have to do, right? So I have, a, I have guys that I work with that, they're not great on the cardio aspect. Guess what? When you're out of camp, starting the week after you fight, so I give you one week off, unless you are, unless you really, really need two, three, four weeks, like mentally, like you're almost like Dennis Rodman, where you got to go to Vegas, bang hookers. <laughs> oh
1: God, oh no! <laughs> but or if you get hurt, let's let's think about that. Or if you have a no. substantial injury. No, we don't care about that. But if you feel like,
0: if you need to like let loose a little bit, whatever, if that's, if that, that's what makes you successful, whatever. But if you really need to focus on your cardio base, starting the week after your fight, we start working on your aerobic capacity. So what that means is anywhere between 45 minutes to 90 minutes of consistent cardio work, running, biking. You can ride an aerodyne bike. You can ride a road bike. You can ride a mountain bike. You can go on runs, whatever you could. Hike, it doesn't matter as long as you're staying between your fat burning zone. So, for the average person, it's anywhere between 125 to 145 beats per minute. If you're in the UFC or if you have access to a VO2 max, they can get a little bit more specific and give you an actual, like, personal range for your fat burning zone. Highly recommend you do that. But staying within your fat burning zone for 45 to 90 minutes of consistent cardio work that is going to increase your aerobic capacity. It also increases what's called left ventricular hypertrophy, which allows more blood to pump through the system. And why that's important is it actually increases recovery. So the cool thing about our increase in aerobic capacity is that it increases your ability to recover on the stool and drop your heart rate, which is why I think it's extremely important because not only does it give you the cardio to then push into the later rounds, but it also in that minute in between rounds, it allows you to then drop your heart rate, Focus on what you need to focus on. And it allows you to actually get back into it in the second round at the same heart rate that you started the first, instead of starting at a heightened state and then using more energy than you need to
1: use. Yeah, absolutely. And and what Austin was just describing there is would be kind of a cardiac output method, right? So you're working on how much blood you're Um, heart can physiologically handle through the hypertrophy of the left ventricle, but also um, as a total output of that 45 to 90 minutes uh, work. And um, just to kind of plug this, if you visit our website, buildingfighter.com, there's a free conditioning uh, guidelines up there for MMA. So Austin just explained the first Low, row the first block cardiac output method why would we do this what's the intensity it gives you time and duration how many per week you should do um it's just a really good resource it's what i use to um program all of my conditioning for i mean even people outside mma you use it because you made it well i stole a <laughs> lot of the information from uh this one guy called joel jameson um that's smart dude i'm sure Unlike nobody's spark. heard of yeah um, but again, it it's pretty much a guide through a lot of his methods and his, um, ideas around the energy systems. But yeah, I polished it up for MMA. Um, but again, it gives you all this information and it's just a guideline to here's how I should train. Um, when we're talking about aerob- the aerobic system and developing the capacity, so how long you can go before you have to stop or before you have to quit and what pace you can, Um, we talk about capacity in that way, but we also have a power type of, um, aspect to our aerobic system. And those, those two words don't usually coalesce, but with our aerobic system, we can push it to the limit for a defined period of time. So we get right up to like what we call our aerobic threshold. So before you start doing lactic acid intervals, but with the aerobic power, we want to get to the highest pain or highest pace that we can maintain, um, for like three to five to seven minutes. Um, and that's, that's what I call a threshold method. So aerobic thresholds are essentially, I don't know, you can think about it like uh, mile intervals or you can do it, on the aerodyne I, I like to just do time. So it's like a three-minute trial on a spin bike on an Airdyne where you're trying to maintain a pace, not just max out your pace. Because if you're maxing out your pace, you're getting too high on your intensity and you're outside of the aerobic system. So we want to find three to five minutes. Five minutes works really well because MMA rounds are typically five minutes. Five minutes at a maintainable aerobic pace. And that will help increase the amount of volume you can fit in that helps you increase your pace in the fight because you're used to pushing this aerobic threshold.
0: What implements are you using to do that? Are you putting people on the aerodyne bike Are you put people, are, are they allowed to do MMA specific movements or do they have to stay on cardio equipment?
1: You can do anything that you want. As long as again, you're moving like we had, I, we used to implement this a lot with our soccer team uh, when I used to coach at DU and that was running, right? Cause then the sport they run, but you can do it on MMA rounds. The only thing I would caution against with grappling or MMA is, you know, it's really hard to stay toned down. Like as soon as you start grappling and things hit, all of a sudden intensity flies out the door and I got to win the go. And then we're not achieving the specific conditioning stress that we're after.
0: So, and then the other thing, just to make it more applicable for the people that don't know what an aerobic threshold is, if they're just looking at their polar graph. So say you have a graph, what is it? I think it's like gray zone through red zone. Where is that aerobic threshold that you're talking about for most people, just so they know for their own training?
1: Um, Again, it varies, but we want to get it, I mean, above the cardiac output place. So we get to like the 135, 155, um, maybe a little higher beats per minute. But it's pushing right up until like a a sprint or a lactic interval. And I guess I know that's kind of a vague answer, but you're in your – I don't know the polar, uh, so, so think the like
0: there's head, five right? zone. there's five zones. So, right. So you're thinking about like zone three and a half
1: ish. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So like before you get to where you're very strenuous exercise, but after that blue zone, where you feel like you can go for 90 minutes at a
1: time. Right. Uh, a good practical test that I put people through as well is when you're doing the output method that Austin was talking about earlier, you're running on your on long distance runs you want to be able to hold a steady conversation. And that's the talk test is kind of- uh, the Carl tried, Foster, yeah, the both of our professors. UW lacrosse method. But when you're on that cardiac output, you want to be able to hold and maintain a steady conversation. So me and Austin could do this podcast while we're on a run together. Granted, I would run a lot slower, but that's besides Correct. the point. When we're doing the threshold training, I want you to be barely able to manage a sentence. Like you can spit out a sentence, but then you got to go back to breathing. And then maybe in a couple of seconds, you spit out another sentence, but then you got to go back to, to your, your work at hand. Um, any more intense than that when I can only maybe say a word, or if I get even more choked up where I'm just grinding and I can't say anything that's too intense for the aerobic system per se.
0: Yep. Okay. Got you. So you have to be able to at least say a sentence as a sure. cool, good, a good rule.
1: Yeah. When you're doing these, again, I'm looking at the conditioning guideline right in front of me right now, when you're doing the, Threshold training, three to 10 minutes per rep develop or progress up to that 10 minutes. You do two to five reps per session and you get, um, one to five minutes rest. So it depends.
0: And then, so another system that I, I personally train a lot out of camp versus in camp in the gym is going to be your lactic system. Because out of camp, I feel as though we can actually isolate the system a little bit better. We decrease the variables and increase what I call univariable training. So I can train the lactic system on an air bike instead of having them grapple and be able to cheat a little bit, all these different things, and actually isolate different variables within a lactate system, whether it's lactic power, lactic capacity. Like I've actually been gravitating towards uh, static dynamics is I think what Joel Jamison calls them, which are like, it's two seconds of heavy push, two reps of heavy, heavy banded pushes in a row. And then a 10 second hold under contracted state to help buffer lactate. But the lactic system is if you ever grappled for prolonged periods of time, those, then when your arms feel heavy as fuck, they feel like you have a hundred pound sandbags on each arm and you can't actually elevate them. That's lactic pooling for the most part. That's that, that lactic, what Alex talked about earlier, that aerobic capacity or that aerobic threshold. That's when we cross over into lactic pooling. We're not able to buffer the lactate as well as we could, right? So we can't buffer to the point where it's actually building up into our arms or legs or whatever it may be. And it feels heavy. That's a good thing to train out of camp or off season because A, it sucks it's, mm-hmm. it's called OPEX, which is a, uh, it's a training system that I actually gravitate towards because I think they have some fantastic ideas for energy systems. They call it pain. That's their la- Their lactic system is called pain. And it's for good reason. Cause it fucking sucks. You're in pain yeah. when you do it. Um, and so I gravitate towards it out of camp because it's fucking painful. When I'm in camp, there is such a high workload. There's such a high intensity that why am I putting you through pain in the gym as well, when we can capitalize different areas. So that's something that I kind of want to bring up is, and I want to hear your thoughts on it because like lactic training to me in, in camp is overstated. Do I do it sometimes, but mm. do I really want to do it unless the athlete necessarily needs it? I would say personally, no, they get enough that's sports specific. What are your
1: thoughts? No, I think I think your approach is, is valid because the way I look at it from a logical standpoint is when we're out of camp and we're not training specifically for a competition or for a, a fight that's upcoming.
2: If you know me, you know I'm always on the run, up early and home late. So having a three-hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, it's a powerful healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's one scoop mixed in water once a day and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash provengrit. That's drinkag1.com slash provengrit. Check it out. If you know me, you know I'm always on the run up early, and home late, so having a 3-hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre, and probiotics, and more, it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's one scoop, mixed in water, once a day, and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash grit. That's drinkag1.com slash grit. Check it out.
1: The main emphasis is training. The main emphasis is not performance, right? So we don't need to save anything with our training. We can do the more damaging, the more, you know, neurologically heavy, um, impactful stuff. Okay, so that's where we can do like our <laughs> – let's go, Austin. Um,
0: well, rest see you, gentlemen. Where all of this is being-
1: what is that? <laughs> I don't
0: know. Hold on. There we go. Sorry. That's the <laughs> course that I that's the course that we're putting together. That's the low back program plus now. Austin low-
1: has to go back and edit this podcast, which I love. No,
0: I'm not even gonna edit it. I'm gonna oh I'm gonna take God, the I'm gonna, gonna take low. the L on this one. Uh. So that's the low back program that I've put together <laughs> for anybody that's has flared up low backs or anything. If you're a jujitsu athlete and you have low back pain, low back problems, low back instability, the low back program on building a fighter.com is a fantastic resource that allows you to train your low back in a safe and stable way to get you back on the mat and move in and groove in the way that you should.
1: So there's my plug. Boom. It's planned. Cool. Yeah. That was planned on purpose, but Yep. What we we're actually talking about, okay? Doing the most damage through your training out of camp. I think that's a hundred percent a bona fide approach because you're focusing on training. You can do the lactic system where you're going to be sore and you feel heavy and like shit for a couple of days. You can do the eccentric training, which is the heavily, you know, most heavily loaded, you know, muscle tissue type of stress. Um, those are appropriate methodologies when we're not focusing on performance. So it's not important that you win in the next three days after we do those heavy grinding workouts. Um, when we get in camp, some of that is necessary. I would say some, because you still need to be adapted for that system because you're going to see it in your competition, but you don't need to grind the system to a halt or you don't need to do more damage than you can recover from in camp. Because if we're doing more damage, we're going to put you at a, 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 less optimal state. And then you can't perform. The goal is to perform when you're in camp. So we're going to put you out in the cage at 80% if we've done these type of workouts for the two weeks leading up.
0: And psychologically you should feel good in camp. I feel like that's something that's not thought about enough. You should feel like a fucking killer by the end of your camp. You shouldn't feel run down. If you feel run down, something as far as workload wise has been fucked up in your in camp training right yeah. you should feel like you're going into the best fight of your life every time you step into the cage
1: well you just feel run down like the whole wrestling season when you're in college you know that's because that's, you're yeah. repeatedly making weight workloads too high everything like that you just are constantly in a rundown state and like it's almost like it's a relief to get your fight done rather than exciting and actual perform so i think that that is a huge point on the psychological side um one thing I want to get into a little bit, and maybe we need to do a, a whole separate podcast on this type of topic, but we've been alluding to it twice that MMA practice and grappling practice and, and all that stuff is really hard to control your energy system, right? So you t- we're talking about doing threshold training or you're talking about working your lactic system. There's different ways in MMA that you can get out of those systems or that because it's so dynamic. There's such an open window and, and changing um, mental aspect and approach in the, in the, the interval or the session that it's really hard to control for those energy systems. So that's an interesting interplay when we think about like, time and work rates and actually using different energy systems when we're actually doing the sport.
0: I agree. That's going to have to be a separate podcast because I can be <laughs> on and on and on about this, but my little, my little like intro to it is going to be, it's all mental. It depends on you having goals based around your grappling sessions. And yeah. if you, if you're pushing yourself to a hundred percent, not care too many people care if they win or lose in practice, not enough people care if they're going after your goals and I'll leave it at that because that's what fucks up your under system training and
1: grappling. Dude. Yeah. That's such a, such a wormhole to get into, but we'll stay away from it. What I want to segue into, and want to talk about is, and I want to talk about it a little bit. Sorry, Austin is neurological neuromuscular strength adaptations when we're out of camp.
0: <laughs> Fuck you. This is my go-to.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I'm the strength guy. So I get to talk about this shit. Um, so when we're out of camp, what we're doing, we, we just talked about the aerobic system, which is pretty much your base of your energy system development, right? That's the lowest level on the pyramid. That's going to feed into all of the other qualities that you go after in your training that equivalent on a neuromuscular Side of things is general and absolute strength. So when we talk about general absolute strength, it's like what your all one RM is, how much weight you can pick up five times, or it's your heavy strength sessions. Um, and this is a good place to implement this when we're fresh out starting camp because it's a little bit slower paced, it's uh, a little bit more uh, low stress type of work, it's a little bit um again, more general. So it's not MMA specific, but it allows us physiologically to go very far, if that makes sense. It most
0: definitely
1: does. No, Austin's staring off into space because he feels disrespected.
0: No, no. I was looking at, I put up a new thing in my office. It's the Cubs winning the World Series. At last, Cubs capture catcher first oh title in 108 years. Anyways, <laughs> talking about neuromuscular adaptation. So it's, out of camp, it's going, when I think about neuromuscular adaptation out of camp is when I do the high CNS, CNS loading exercises. So I'm going to overload them to the point where I might, I'm, I may or may not fry their CNS who knows, fuck it, but I'm going to load them in a way. Cause I know I'm the main priority out of camp. And I feel like a lot of strength coaches don't realize that you can take the reins out of camp and you can take the reins and I want to make them a better athlete It's not about becoming a better fighter out of camp. It's about becoming a better athlete and becoming a better individual. And I can take the reins and say, hey, this is my time to shine. I can make this person, I can load this person up. We can do heavy ass five by fives to increase their strength or whatever metric you pick. And I'm going to overload them to the point where I know they're going to get better. And I can take control and I can allow them to increase those metrics instead of Hey, we really need to focus on our our single leg technique. When it gets to the cage, we know this guy is going to jump a guillotine, which is what currently in camp might happen. Where it's way too in camp, it's way too per. Or, uh, we'll say opponent specific. Out of camp, it's you're training for everybody. So you need to be the best version of that athlete. You need to be the best version of that person. And that's where I can elevate. And that's where I can increase the neuromuscular adaptations. I can increase the strength adaptation. And I can overload the system to the point where I'm functionally overtraining or functionally overreaching is the actual word that is going to increase the adaptation and allow the athlete to grow, not the fighter to grow.
1: To super compensate on the back end, which makes you yeah. better. Um, and I'm exactly. gonna push I'm gonna push back on you a little bit. I agree with your overall sentiment that out of camp, we put a lot more emphasis on the training and a lot more emphasis on being a better athlete. But I still think that is in service of becoming a better fighter. I don't think we should ever lose the um, idea that this person in front of me is a, MMA, a mixed martial artist. They're a fighter. They're not a you know strength sport individual, right? So as right. W- as again, <laughs> this is me feeling hypocritical saying this. As much as I love strength sports and and everything like that, I'm not gonna make somebody a power lifter out of camp. We may do some power lifting workouts or some power lifting type of methodology, but I have to keep in mind that if they want want strength conditioning to be the main emphasis, and that's what's genuinely the best for them, and we've communicated this on a coaching staff and on a personal level with the fighter, then that's what should happen. But if that's not the agreement on the camp and I just try and step in as a strength coach and take over... That's not going to go well, right? So I think we still need a scope of some, some social prowess to understand where the individual is at uh, mentally as well as in their game planning. And certainly as coaches, we advocate for what we think is going to be the best, but we need to get everybody on the same page because I think even if it's not as optimal of a plan that I think I can create, if it's a plan that everybody on the coaching staff and the fighter is wholeheartedly onto that's going to be more effective than whatever optimal I think of on my own.
0: Right. Well, no, you're hundred percent right. Maybe I, I'm coming from a place where I'm both a skill coach and a strength coach to where I can kind of mesh them. Yeah. But so
1: the, the strength coach takes over a little right, bit, but it, right. it's, it's not completely done with fighting.
0: Well, it's, it's because I'm also most of my guys' skill coach as well, like one yeah. of their skill coaches. So I can see, but you're you're 100% right you should never overstep your bounds but this is where communication comes in right that's where as the strength coach you should be able to have a conversation or feel at least feel comfortable having a conversation with their skill coaches saying i'm seeing a strength deficit say somebody doesn't have proper horizontal force loading, right? They're not able to create horizontal forces the way that you would project them to. So their three rep max trap bar deadlift score, if you're using the building a fighter screen, is not able to get to where you optimally are loading the tissue, right? So you talk to the skill coach and say, hey, they're not able to hit a three rep max of 2.5 times their body weight, so... Ipso facto, I think we need to focus more on strength during this out of camp session. And then it just so happens that the skill coach, who is a wrestling coach, notices that they're not actually able to hold people isometrically on the cage as well as they should be able to. They're not able to push their hips in, they're not able to finish their doubles, or, ipso, or, or in a different setting, they're not able to hold somebody on the cage, right? So, strength metric. So those two things correlate. Boom. We have a means to an end. Isolating a strength metric allows us to then increase our strength, which increases to our transfer into sport that allows us to then hold people on the cage, finish cage takedowns, be able to control the fight a little bit more and become stronger as an individual. None of that occurs though. If what Alex is saying, if you just you're a, road, you're, you're a cowboy, you're out in the Wild West and you do your own shit and don't talk to anyone. Right. You need to be able to have a assessment of not just a strength metric, not just a healthcare metric for my end, but also a skill metric and talk to the skill coach who can genuinely and honestly dissect their performance and say, hey, they're having trouble with this. How does this correlate to your world? And you can then Talk back to them and say, "Hey, we need to focus on these different attributes in the S C side of things."
1: Absolutely, and that's where it, it comes into in handy to speak different languages. Like, and not just in a, a traditional sense of different languages, but speak MMA skill technique language, speak strength and conditioning language, speak you know anatomical physical therapy language, it, it talk neuromuscular um, CNS language. It, you just need to have. Those skill sets, and again, not to the point that you're you studied on all of them and, you know, have a, a doctorate or whatever in everything, but you need to be able to have those conversations. Just like Austin outlined, he, he did a great job flowing from holding somebody on a cage to isometric strength to focusing on, on a face. Like, again, you need to be able to distinguish those and speak the skill coach language um, is what I've learned a lot in my time. But segueing away from that and going to a couple of kind of quick hitter questions, Austin, um, and we can open up and talk about more. What do you want to say?
0: No, continue. If you got questions, I want to answer.
1: <laughs> I know. You Let's go. It, you Let's answer, go.
0: Right? Um, Bring them at me.
1: So optimally out of camp in camp. How many days a week do you see fighters for strength and conditioning?
0: Uh, depending on the fighter out of camp, I see three to four in camp. I see two to three.
1: Beautiful. I like that a lot. Um, you mentioned isometric strength. Um, correct. How, where are you? How much do you like triphasic training? Um, not necessarily in the packaged Caldeet sense, but in yeah. using different muscle, muscular contractions in your phases.
0: Well, I mean, Caldeet runs a cult, so that's cool. <laughs> but uh, no, I actually, I love triphase training. I use a whole bunch of ISOs and I use a whole bunch of eccentrics in my training. Um, a lot of the times, though, my triphase training is actually out of camp, funny enough, not as much in camp. In camp, I do a bunch of contrast. And in camp, I do a bunch of um, like power adaptation training. Yeah. Out of camp is when I focus on isos and eccentrics because something I wanted, why I raised my finger to you. Something that I wanted to focus on and something I want to talk about is biomechanical advantages and training biomechanics behind things. Eccentrics and isometrics are one of the best ways to train the brain to understand a range of motion or to understand a new range of motion and allow for that time under tension, the brain to recognize that the movement is safe and effective. And that's why I use a lot of ISOs and a lot of eccentrics out of camp is because I have the time to increase biomechanical advantage and fix quote unquote, I know I'm going to get slandered by this, but faulty movement patterns, but fit fix movement patterns that I don't see as advantageous for my athletes um, because out of camp, I have the time to spend on fixing those different movement patterns that I don't think are helping certain athletes that I work
1: well, with. Well, and eccentric, especially slash isometric blocks or phases in the weight room, are they fit in that category of a ton of stress, of a lot more damage than our other the contrasting and and lower volume training. So that again, fits in the bucket of out of camp work. Um, I love eccentric exercise and phases because of what Austin was saying with the motor learning and the the patterning, but also it's a great way if you're trying to add mass to add mass, um, it's a great way to load up muscular tissues and you actually get a lot more strength gains quicker with, uh, eccentric loading, you have to be careful with super maximal eccentric loading. But again, that's kind of the extreme end of the spectrum, but you get a lot of mass, you get a lot of strength gains. Um, you get a lot of tissue tolerance as well. So again, you're building up the the tissue to be able to handle a lot of the loading that is going to happen instantaneously and rapidly in the cage. So big fan of that outside of camp neuromuscular uh neuromuscularly is that a word i don't know training wise um what else you got austin what else is good neuromuscular adaptations in out of camp i
0: don't know you're fucking asking me questions um
1: then you want to be asked questions earlier
0: <laughs> yeah ask me more questions uh neuromuscular adaptations so typically i go in triphasic right um out of camp i focus like i said quick hitters i focus on aerobic capacity a lot out of camp i focus on any sort of triphasic training, mostly in the eccentric and isometric loading positions. Um, in camp, I do some isometrics, just different grappling based isometrics. So like a mid thigh pole, uh, split stance, mid thigh pull, Jefferson deadlift, mid mid thigh pull, or a Jefferson deadlift hold is something that I do a bunch of. Um, actually I do Reeves deadlifts a lot. Fun fact. I think that's extremely important. Think about like a grappling situation where you have to have heavy lats that allows me to then hold that position, hold that arms wide position that is like cage grappling and allows me to get to different points. Um, what else, what else neuromuscular? And honestly, I focus on motor patterns. If somebody has an issue with a lunge pattern, which is basically just a wrestling shot, fun fact lunges, everybody that hates lunges, that's just a wrestling shot. So fuck you. Um, that's where I really get to isolate that. Hey, maybe they're overextending in their lumbar spine. That's where I focus on your functional capacity. Something we haven't even talked about yet is functional capacity. And I don't want to go into, um, because that's going to make this at least 45 minutes longer.
1: So let me sum up functional capacity in one sentence here. You have to train a lot in order to train well. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll even dumb it down even
0: further, <laughs> Alex. I got you fam. So say that you absolutely can lift your max deadlift is 400 pounds, but you look like a dog taking a shit at 400 pounds. Say that you can really, really well with proper form and a neutral spine lift 300 pounds. Your functional capacity is 300 pounds. Your absolute capacity is 400 pounds. You have a hundred pound difference between your functional capacity and your absolute capacity. That's a lot of fucking work. You should be able to do proper form at 380 pounds. And then, hey, you might be able to overreach to 400 pounds to get to that absolute max. That's what we're looking at.
1: That was a lot longer than my description.
0: That's cool. But people get it more. So that's (laughs) worse. (laughs) <laughs> um, but functional capacity is an out-of-camp training system i'm not going to increase your functional capacity in camp It's really fucking hard to do yeah. right it takes a long time to fix biomechanics and biomechanical advantage same with it think about like strength base functional capacity and aerobic capacity those are your big three out of camp
1: yeah if you and fix I-
0: anything it's those
1: Yeah. And I want to expand on what you're talking about, biomechanic, uh, kind of deficits. Um, a lot of what happens and what I see out of camp, especially if we have an extended out of camp period is an athlete coming back from injury, right? So an athletes had an injury in the fight or they had this nagging injury through camp and they just finished through the camp and the fight with it because they didn't want to give up their, their spot. Um, that's a good time to uh, address those from a physical therapy perspective, but also reintegrate them into our strength and conditioning and then ultimately our actual sport training. So those can be great focuses, whether we're you know rehabbing ankle and getting footwork back going or we're building strength back up through a shoulder because they had an AC sprain that they didn't want to um, really address in camp. Those are great times, you know, your week after fight or two weeks after fight to start up those processes. So we're not dragging our feet and we don't have to just, you know, repeat this, uh, be like a broken record and have those same problems in the next camp. Right. So take your time out of camp to address those deficiencies, whether just a movement thing or whether they're a movement thing piled on top of an injury. Um, I think that's that, that's a huge bucket to fill, box to check, however you want to say it. Well, right. I mean,
0: without going too far into it, it's, hey, is faulty movement actually faulty? Is it faulty because it's painful or is it faulty because you said it's faulty?
1: Sure, <laughs> sure that, that's a whole nother podcast in itself too. like where where are your standards for movement or your standards? effective or your standards, you know, textbook biomechanics or, or whatever, what have you. So right. I think that's a different Mo- topic movement for a different
0: only, day. <laughs> yeah. Movement only becomes faulty when it's painful. It's there's, I move different than you, you move different than me. There's obviously more advantageous positions, but typically I'm not going to fix a whole bunch of shit unless it's really glaring until I see it's a decreasing their performance. Like there's not enough centration in the movement or B, it's extremely painful and there's adaptations, headaches, pain in the joint, whatever it may be due to the movement
1: that's occurring. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that, you know, I think mean, time and place as well, you know, like th- there is a time to, you know, bite your lip through shoulder pain or through a certain amount of pain to get to fight day, you know?
0: Right. No, hundred percent. I, I won't, I don't fix shit in camp <laughs> in, in camp, those faulty movements. Hey, fucking pres- kill them kill them, bro. <laughs> we,
1: we protect them and, uh, try and maximize what we have. You can't yep. really yep. increase your threshold. So that's, in- that's kind of, I think a good summary point for the whole out of camp phase and, and, and contrasting it to in camp when we're out of camp, we're raising the bar, we're pushing the ceiling higher. We're giving you a lot more potential through your athleticism and everything to, I think you're saying we're widening the base of your pyramid. Is that what you're trying nope. to say? That's Mario, bro. That's an M. (laughs) Jesus. Um, But we're pushing the ceiling up. We're trying to raise your potential, raise your capacity. When we get to in camp, the focus is no longer raising the ceiling. It's no longer pushing the ceiling higher. It's filling you all the way up to the ceiling. It's trying to maximize what we already have. It's not giving you more. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: honestly what I would say is we're raising the, we're increasing the floors out of camp. Or getting to the ceiling in camp
1: okay sure that's a good analogy as if we, if we're in an elevator
0: yep i like elevators
1: that's that's a weird thing to like austin
0: i don't fuck with stairs bro why am i walking upstairs
1: shocker you um, lazy lazy man
0: i live my life by the creed smarter not harder
1: but <laughs> anyways
0: we're gonna end on that <laughs> if you guys have any questions at all hit us up building a we also have building a at gmail.com if you want to shoot us an email. Also, Sports Wellness or strong.af on Instagram, as well as building a fighter on Instagram, which we both have access to. Please like, share, subscribe, do all the cool things that allow us to become friends with your friends, because we like your friends. They're cool people. People that listen to our podcasts are cool people, so you associate with cool people. We would like to talk to them. So share us, like us, subscribe to us, so that we can talk to more cool people. This is building a fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, Alex Friedman, and we are out.